fivefold. All right. So glad that you're here with us this morning. So glad that you have chosen to fight the pollen with all of your might. I don't know about you, but I have, I have the Kleenex on standby right now because of the pollen that's on the tree. So good for you. Good for fighting the pollen this morning. We're glad that you're here. I, in college, loved playing intramural sports. One of my favorite things to do. I, I, loved, I got a whole organization together out of our dorm, and we played intramural sports from freshman year all the way through senior year. The problem was, as freshmen, though, we weren't any good. Uh, we, got, we got the crud kicked out of us all the time. It was bad. We once lost a softball game 52-3. to It's a true story. It was bad. It was bad. Towards the middle of the year, though, we had, we had played almost every sport, basketball, football, softball, and we had an indoor soccer team. And the thing about my dorm is all the international students were in it, you know, all the kids who grew up playing soccer. And our freshman indoor soccer team was full of studs. I mean, they were crushing it. They were winning the league. It was awesome. We had one guy we just called the Spaniard. He was awesome. We loved him. And we were crushing all of these other teams of upperclassmen. It was fabulous. And then all of a sudden, the upperclassmen of the fraternities got wise to it, and they started roughing up our team. You know, these are the little 18-year-old freshmen haven't filled out yet. And all of a sudden, they start running our guys into the walls, body-checking our teammates. And it got a little heated. All I know is I, I had lost in basketball and flag football and softball. I wished I was on the indoor soccer team, but as you can see me today, I'm not much of a soccer player. So I, I was sitting there in my dorm room one night, and the soccer captains came up, and they knocked on my door, and they, they walked in. They said, Skiff. I says, what? They says, we want you to join the indoor soccer team. I said, why are you joking with me like that? I said, I don't play soccer. I was the kid that they put at goalie growing up. I don't play soccer. And they said, no, you don't understand. We want you to come in. We want you to play defense about 10 minutes a game, and we just want you to accidentally run into the other team's forwards. Can you make it look like an accident as you run them into the walls? Because that's what they're doing to us. I said, that sounds great. Are you serious? They says, yeah, yeah. And they had, for those of you who are like soccer enthusiasts, you had, you had legal substitutions all the time. So you could come in for a few minutes, rough up the other team's players, and leave. I have never been happier to be a part of a winning organization. I got to go in and just knock upperclassmen into walls and pretend, oh, I'm sorry, whoops, for the rest of the season. But what was so great is I got to be part of a winning team. I got to play my part in something that was incredibly rewarding, even though I couldn't really play soccer all that well and I wasn't, didn't have any other talent than being a big guy. But that's what it was. I enjoyed being part of that team because I'd been part of teams that just hadn't won anything and didn't have anything good going on. Well, the nature of being a Christian is that God has invited you onto the best team in human history. You all of a sudden get to be a part of something incredibly awesome, whether you feel skilled or able or not, whether you feel talented or gifted or not, whether you feel athletically or mentally inclined or not, when you become a Christian, God invites you onto his winning team. The beauty of Easter is that we have hope for eternity evermore. We know where we're going when we die. We know what's going to happen to us. It's a beautiful thing to stand in. But Christianity goes one step further in that God invites you into the very things he's doing in the world and says, are you ready to play your role as part of my team? Today we're going to talk about a guy named Solomon, the son of David, David being the most famous king of God's people Israel. 
And Solomon is given a preeminent place on God's team. He's given a huge part of God's plan, and it's handed to him on a silver platter. And from Solomon's life today, we're going to see what it means to be a part of the team, a part of God's plan. And I'm going to show you four things from his life today, four things that if we will follow and think about and and ruminate upon and allow to get down into our spirit, we will be able to stay a part of God's team, operating for him and through him for the rest of our days. And it's so much better than being on our own losing team. 1 Kings chapter 3, or in the story Bible, page 176, is where we're going to start this morning. We're going to start in verse 1 of 1 Kings 3, page 176 in the story. We begin to hear about what Solomon did as king after succeeding his father David. Solomon, it says in verse 1, made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David, you all know it as Jerusalem, until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple, as you can see on our illustration today, had not yet been built for the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh God. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices because that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. The first thing that I want you to see this morning as we become part of God's plan is that Solomon had a humble heart. I mean, it's so very apparent, so very clear clear that his heart was in a place of humility toward God. And Solomon starts this entire story by offering a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord, as if God had ever asked for that. God hadn't. God was pleased with any offering that was made to him, which reminded people that they, they need a relationship with him, and they, they, they've been separated from him by their sin, and, and, and they make that sacrifice to remind themselves that they are in relationship to God because of his mercy. God never asked for a thousand sacrifices, but Solomon's heart is in a place where he's like, God has been so good, I just want to serve him, I just want to give him something, what can I give the Lord? That's where his heart begins. So God comes to him while he's making these sacrifices in a dream by night, and the Lord says, Solomon, ask for whatever you wish. Ask me. I see your heart. I see how it's turned towards me and humbled towards me. And what do we see about Solomon? Solomon recognizes the goodness of the Lord. The first thing he says 
to God is, God, I recognize the goodness that you've shown, the kindness that you've shown to my father David. I saw it in his life. I saw it how you took care of him. I saw how you provided for him. I saw how, how he had everything that he had because of you. And I know, God, that everything that I have is because of you as well. I see it. This is an important part of seeing our part in God's plan. It's important to recognize not only that our heart be turned towards God's as Solomon's was, but it's important that we begin to look back at our lives and the lives of people around us and see the goodness and mercy of God. That's true humility. It's so easy in this life to look at everything that we gain, everything that we attain, every good thing that happens and go, yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah, I've, I, I, I did that with my own two hands. I did that with my brains. I did that with my strength. I did that with my might. It's easy in our flesh to be, be people like that, to act like that. Solomon is king over a great nation. Solomon has every reason to act proud and arrogant and like a jerk. And he goes, I realize that I'm only here because of your goodness. And I want to tell you, for those of you who are just beginning to experience this walk of faith with God, you'll begin, as you get deeper and deeper in the things of God, to begin to look back at moments in your life and say, wow, I think that was God. Wow, I, that person who came into my life unsolicited that I needed right at that moment, that was the Lord. That favor that I was shown when I really didn't deserve it, that was the Lord. The fact that I've come this far in, in my endeavors and my family or my business or my relationships, that's because of the goodness and the grace of the Lord. That's the humility that begins to be built in the people of God, and Solomon shows it from the start. But then Solomon does something you might not expect with, the, with what the Lord offered him. The Lord offers to give him anything he wants, but look at what he says in verse 8. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number, so give me a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? How did Solomon's humble heart put him right in the center of God's plan? His humble heart put him in the center of God's plan because he recognized that God had a plan and that he was part of it. He doesn't say, help me to govern my people. What does he say? Help me to govern your people, your great people. I recognize, God, that you are doing something on this earth, and you have put, placed me in a position where I get to partner with you, but holy moly, that is a daunting task. Like, like, like think about that for a minute. Like, that's where you are right in this minute. No, you're not a king, you're not a queen. If you think you are, we'll meet you in the counseling room after. But you are in a place right here, right now, where you have the opportunity, you have been given the privilege to be part of God's plan and what he is doing in this world. Like, the guy who created all this has come to your dorm room and knocked on the door and said, you want to be part of this? And so often we come onto the playing field in God's kingdom and we go, yeah, yeah, I got a lot to offer. I've got strength, I've got brains, I've got giftings. Use me, God. Solomon says none of this. He says, I might as well be a child. He has a humble and he has a teachable spirit. And he says, God, I need you to help me if I'm to play my part in your plan.
Some of us, though, come to God another way. We come more like Solomon from the start. But we think to ourselves, what could I ever offer God? I mean, my life's a hot mess. I, I don't have anything to offer God. I'm glad that God has given me the opportunity to have a relationship with him, but I don't think I can play much of a part in what he's doing. But the whole story of what's going on with Solomon here is not told unless we go back to the beginning. Look for a moment at verse 3. It says, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instruction given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Except. There was an except here. You see, the high places weren't of God. The high places were the place where the Canaanites had worshipped their gods. The high places were the, were the places where, where the Canaanite gods had been esteemed and worshipped. And here Israel that has a tabernacle and has an altar and has an Ark of the Covenant and has been told when and how they should be sacrificing to the Lord are operating in kind of a pagan way. They're operating in a yucky way. They're, they're, they're sort of mixing religion. They, they don't quite know who they're to be yet. They're, if they do, they're not quite operating in the right way. And Solomon is joining them in it. Solomon is participating in something he should not have been participating in. And yet, in spite of that, God looks at him and says, ask for whatever you wish. Why do I bring this up today? I bring this up because it's easy to look at the characters of the Bible and go, they were just so awesome. I wish I could be like them. But Solomon was still unredeemed in some of his behavior. Solomon was still a work in progress, and God wanted to use him anyways. And I assure you, whether you want to hear it or not, that you are still a work in progress. And God wants to use you anyways. You know how I know that? Because I'm still a work in progress. And God uses me anyways. That's the beauty of being drafted onto God's team. Even though we, we, we have these things going on in our lives that, that, that we might see or we might not see, that, that, that we might be perfect or we, we realize that we're not, God still wants to use us. And even Solomon is in a place where he's still not quite right with God. And God wants to use him anyways. And his response of humility pleases the Lord. Let's move forward and see what happens next when we're brought in to God's plan and God brought in to God's team. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 29, bottom of page 178 for you in the story. Let's see the second thing that happens when we become part of God's plan. Verse 29 of chapter 4. I'm sorry, I might have said chapter 5, but chapter 4 of 1 Kings, bottom of page 178. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of the people of Egypt, wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. What is taking place here? Solomon is coming in to be part of God's plan because of his humility and heart, and he begins to see the favor of the Lord. 
He begins to see the favor of the Lord. God begins to bestow upon him things that, that you would look at and go, I can't believe that that's happening. And Solomon becomes the wisest man on earth. You still hear today of the wisdom of Solomon. Now, I don't really know who Ethan is or Haman, Calcol, Darda. Certainly don't know who Mahal is, but it would have meant something to the people reading it at the time. That Solomon's wisdom has surpassed these people. And what we find as we read this part of the story is people are coming to Israel just to see Solomon, just to meet him, just to, just to sit next to the wise sage. And you say, that's so cool, and I think it's cool too. Solomon writes the majority of the book of Proverbs that's in our Bibles this morning. A lot of the Proverbs are in this story, chapter 13. He writes these Proverbs, and, and you read a proverb, and you, and you go, wow, that's really good. And then you read the next stanza, and you're like, oh, that's really good too. That might be better than what I just read. And then you read the next proverb, and you're like, oh, that's brilliant. And then you read the next proverb, and you go, oh, 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 I don't like that, but I think it's true. And you read the next proverb, and you're like, you know what, now I've read five proverbs. I don't know that I've applied the first four. I'm in deep trouble. I better stop reading proverbs. They're brilliant. They're wisdom from the Lord. Start reading some of them this week in the story, and you'll be going, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I want to live that way. That's brilliant. Well, that's because it's from the Lord. It's what, it's what Solomon asked for, and it's what, what God gave him. Now, 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 I want to tell you, writing a proverb isn't easy. If you don't believe me, go try to write some Proverbs this week. And then, like, read them to your best friend and be like, hey, this is what God showed me. Blah, 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 blah. They're going to look at you and go, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. It's hard to write a proverb. I had a friend of mine, dead serious friend of mine, he decided he was going to start writing Proverbs, like new ones. Like, and he started writing them, and he started publishing them. Oh, my gosh. I just wanted to say, dude, you're embarrassing yourself. Proverbs are hard to write. Solomon's got like 29 chapters of them. They're brilliant. They're from the Lord. They're from God. Meant to give us instruction. This favor that God shows him, though, is not just for favor's sake. What is God doing? What's going on in the upper story that we've been talking about for 13 chapters? Why is Solomon so wise? Well, what's the payoff? People are coming to Israel and seeing not only how wise their king is, but how God has blessed them. They're beginning to see the riches and the wealth that are being attained in Israel. They're beginning to see the wisdom that's in Israel. They're beginning to hear the word of the Lord as passed down by Moses to the people of Israel. In fact, the archaeological evidence shows that the building projects of the major cities during the 10th century B.C. were incredible. We also know that the cultures around Israel at this time, Egypt and the Hittites and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they were waning at the time that Israel was growing. Israel's becoming a major power, and people are going to Israel or thinking about Israel or looking at Israel, and they're beginning to have something go on in their minds going, God lives there. See, Solomon's wisdom was not granted just so Solomon could be like, hey, thanks, God, that's awesome, appreciate it. Solomon's wisdom was granted so that God can continue to work out his plan to bless the people of the world through Israel, that they might begin to know him through his kingdom. It's about the glory of God. It wasn't about Solomon, and Solomon gets it. So Solomon had a, a humbleness of heart. He experiences the favor of the Lord. Why? For him? No, for the overall plan of God. 
And when we see things come into our lives that are sort of just dropped into our lap, we're like, God, that is so good. God is giving us gifts by which we can give him glory and honor him and be part of that plan that he's calling us to be part of. But Solomon does one more thing that I want you to see, and that's what our drawing is of today. Solomon wants to complete the project that his father David laid upon his heart, which was to build God a temple. Solomon says to God in one of his prayers in the story, chapter 13, he says, God, I understand that if I build you this temple and you quote-unquote dwell here, that you're not really dwelling here. He says, because I understand that heaven can't hold you. You're too big for me to make you a house that you literally are always here in, 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 in personal form. I get that. I get that. But what Solomon begins to pray, and you'll read this in chapter 13 this week in your life groups, he begins to pray and he says, God, I pray that when people come to Israel, they'd see this temple and they'd know your presence. I pray that when they pray towards this temple that their prayers would be granted. I pray that what I build for you is not a monument to me. It's a living place of your presence from this day forward so that people will know there's a God in Israel. Read his prayers this week. What's the focus of his heart? It's not so that people come to Israel and are like, wow, Solomon's so wise. It's that they would come to Israel and they'd see that the Lord their God, the one who created them, lived there. And the prayers get answered. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5. We're in the storybook 186 this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, page 186 in the story. Solomon takes years to build this temple, years to complete it. Thousands of laborers to make this beautiful temple unto the Lord. And the people are all around the temple. The people of Israel, they're excited about the fact that the temple is complete. And look at what takes place in verse 13, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, page 186 in the story. The trumpeters and the musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. And accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord. And they sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. We've seen this cloud before in the story. The cloud. In fact, when the tabernacle, the mobile temple of God, was built, the cloud came. When Moses is about to leave Mount Sinai with the with the book of the law, with the covenant, and they're about to start going to the promised land, Moses prays to God, God, if we're going to go from here, please send your presence with us or we're in deep trouble. And God sends the cloud to guide them. And now 450 years later, God's people build a temple and they say this temple is just a place unless you choose to dwell with us here, God. Unless your presence fills this place. And as they are worshiping, as they are praising, as they are singing, he is good, his love endures forever. Whoosh! The presence of the Lord 
joins this generation of Israelites. This moment marks the high watermark of the nation of Israel. The people of the nations have their eyes turned towards Israel. Their king is wiser than anybody else's king. Their, their empire is growing. People are saying there's a God in Israel. For heaven's sakes, the queen of Sheba just comes just to see what God's doing in Israel. You'll read it in the story this week. God is beginning to have people turn their eyes towards Israel, not for Israel's sake, but for his sake, that he could redeem the world and bring them back from their brokenness and estrangement from him. And Israel is becoming the people that he desires them to be. This is it. It's happening. It's happening. The conditions are right. Solomon gets to be the leader of this great thing, and God is so pleased with their heart that he allows his presence to descend in a manifest, real way. And I want you to notice their song. What were they singing? He is good. His love endures forever. They knew God. They knew who they were praying to. They weren't praying to some angry, mean-spirited deity that just wanted them, him to serve, or them to serve him for his own ends. They recognized that God was a God of love and goodness and had good intentions for humanity. They knew who God was. You know, some people will try to shoot holes in the idea that the Bible is, is correct, and they'll say, well, the Old Testament God's just an angry dude, and the New Testament God's full of love. Obviously not the same person. You'll hear this. Watch, watch a History Channel special. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. How did Israel know their God? What did they say of him? He is good. His love endures forever. Sounds a lot like the New Testament God to me. How about you? They knew their God. We've reached the high watermark of Israel's experience with God. If they stay on course, wow, what can be accomplished through them? God knows at this point it's time for a reminder. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, page 189. 1 Kings 9, 4 and following, 189. God reminds them, yes, you've had humility in heart. You've seen my favor. My presence is now among you again. Look at all we're going to accomplish together, but look. 1 Kings 9, 4, he speaks to Solomon. Solomon, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and don't observe the commands and decrees I've given you, or go off to serve other gods and worship them, I'll cut off Israel from the land that I've given them. Did you hear that? I want, to make a, I want you to hear this, because this is important for the coming weeks of the story. He doesn't say he's going to destroy Israel, stop loving them, stop caring for them, does he? What does he say? I'll cut them off from the land of Israel. He doesn't, he's not going to reject them. He's just going to say, we're not going to continue this plan of redemption. He says, I'll, I'll cut you off from the land, I'll reject this temple. Remember, he's just accepted this temple. I'll reject this temple that I've consecrated for my name, and Israel will become a byword and an op object of ridicule among the peoples. They'll become the very opposite of what they are today. 
Today in the story, Israel is revered. But they've got to remain with God and remain in the right place or eventually they'll be the exact opposite. God said this from the beginning. He made this clear when they stood before him at Mount Sinai with Moses. I have a plan for you. You are my kingdom. You are my people. I love you and I've redeemed you and I've saved you. But if you want to remain part of the plan, stick with me. Because I'm not a God who tolerates nonsense. I'm not a God who is going to be glorified by you walking in a way that is not love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I will not continue to use you under me if you're going to walk away from me. That would make no sense. Then you cannot display me to the nations. And he makes a promise to Solomon. He says, Solomon, listen to me. I made a promise to your father David that somehow there's going to be a forever kingdom in his name. You can have that too. You want it? You can have that too. I'll extend the promise to you too, Solomon. Sort of like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had the same promise extended to them. He's extending the same promise to Solomon. Solomon, you stick with me, pal, and you're going to be part of something that lasts into eternity. What do you say? I want you to fast forward to Palm Sunday. A.D. 33. We just celebrated Palm Sunday two weeks ago, waved the palm branches, had a good time. And as Jesus is marching into Jerusalem, they think once again to be the king in this line. What are they screaming? They're screaming, Hosanna to the son of Solomon. No, they weren't. What were they screaming? Hosanna to the son of David. Not Hosanna to the son of David and Solomon. Hosanna to the son of David. And What you're going to see happen next, the fourth thing I want you to see, after the humility, after the favor, after the desire for God's presence, is the only thing that can separate us from our role on the team. Not from the love of God, but from our role on the team Let's look at the fall of Solomon. Page 191, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 6. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. If you want to know what all those are, look at the back of your Bible. There'll, There'll be a map. There were, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they'll turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. And as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his David, father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Child sacrifice was part of the religion of Molech. That's why the Bible says detestable. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Yuck. Yuck. 
is the fourth and final thing I want you to see as being part of God's plan. There's humility that we need to operate in, a teachable spirit. We need to just allow the Lord's favor to come upon us, recognizing, though, it's for his glory and for his plan. We need to seek the presence of God because it is that presence which is going to allow us to do what he wants us to do in this world. But we must give no foothold to sin. No foothold to that which is the opposite of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No foothold to the opposite of God our Father. Nothing, the Bible says, can separate you from the love of God. Did you know that? Nothing. Nothing on earth, nothing in heaven. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But you can choose to hop off the team and not play your part in his plan. And the only thing that can make that happen is sin. God's not going to toy around with it. Solomon begins to marry all these foreign women. And though, though and it'll be on the website, my talk on polygamy this week, but, but though polygamy wasn't outlawed until the New Testament, it was a bad idea. God had said the king shouldn't get involved in this. It had been said in Deuteronomy. But not only that, but God said, whatever you do, don't intermarry with folks from other nations. They'll turn your heart from me. Solomon does this in droves. And his sin leads to excess. This is excess on a monumental scale. But the excess never satisfies. So the excess leads him to seeking something else. And when he begins to seek something else, he finds something else in the religions of his wives, in the gods, liturgy of those he has married. You see, sometimes people go to church and they wonder why churches talk about sin. Can't we all just be happy? Does my pastor just want to control me? Is that why he tells me not to do things? No. No. If a church's heart is right, they, and, I, and I don't want to say that my heart's always right. That would be a foolhardy statement. We all, we all, are fall, have fallen and, and, and fall, we all are sinful, fall short of the glory of God. But what I'm trying to say is if a church comes from the right place, when they talk about sin, they talk about sin as separation from the Lord before salvation. And after salvation, they talk about sin in a way that makes you understand that to continue to walk in this will push you away from all God has for you. And God has an important role for you to play in his kingdom. An important role for you to play on his team. Don't give a foothold to sin, which will lead to excess which will lead to you seeking something else other than God. The path is repeated over and over and over again in the scriptures, and we're supposed to look at the Old Testament as a cautionary tale, and there is no greater caution than reading the book of Ecclesiastes. You want to know why? Solomon wrote it at the end of his life. And what is the common phrase of Ecclesiastes, folks? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Solomon has forfeited his spot on the team 
and he looks back at everything he's built, all the wives that he clung to, all the wisdom that he had, when people would come and say how awesome he was, the temple he had built, and at the end of his life, he's going, this is all worth nothing. Because he gave a foothold to sin. And let it not be said that we only focused on the negative this morning. Because the three positives are our humility puts us in a place where God can begin to use us. His favor will be bestowed so we can do things beyond which we thought we could accomplish. And if we seek his presence, he will send his presence into our lives. But give no foothold to sin. Because it will bust in. And it will make a mess of what God's been trying to do in and through you. When I first started being the lead pastor here at VLC, there was a sweet and a gentle man who'd come in before service every week. And before we had, you know, well, we've always had a newborn child in my family, but sometimes my wife sits with me when we don't. And he'd come and he'd hug my wife and, I love you, Sister Gina. And he'd hug me and he says, I love you, Pastor. Oh, I mean... Uh, was such a man with a sweet heart. You ever meet just a guy who's just got a sweet heart? And, and I knew his story. He was always telling his friends about the Lord and what the Lord had done in his life. Always, always talking about Jesus. And, and, and he'd, he'd just give people gifts. He'd see people in need, he'd, and he'd try to take care of them. Just a sweet, honorable, God-fearing man. He had a wife who passed away, and I got to go and do the funeral for his wife and I sat with him around his kitchen table and he told me his story and he said Pastor Matt he said I just cry because I remember the man I used to be anger and selfishness and self focus and he said my wife stuck with me through all of that God bless her she knew that if I would ever come to the Lord with my full heart, that, that he would use me, and, and I did. And he changed me, but oh, for those years I spent away from the Lord, and he cried. And the story of the man that he told me he was, it didn't fit with the story of the man I knew. Because the man I knew was full of grace and love and sweetness and just wanted God's glory to be made manifest in the lives of others. He wanted other people to be saved. But I'd seen the beauty of what God had done in his life. It was awesome. A few months later, the doctors told him that he was going to have to lose a leg to diabetes. I went and visited him before the surgery. I said, brother, I'm so sorry for what's happening to you. And he cried again. And he said, oh, Pastor Matt, I don't care about the leg. He said, I just don't want God to put me on the shelf. And I said, but brother, I'm going to pray for you right now that God will never put you on the shelf, that to your dying day you get to serve him and love him and honor him and be part of his plan. That's what we're going to pray for. And I walked back in the next day, ready to console him over this devastating surgery. And I looked in the bed looked around the curtain 
There were two legs there. And I thought, that's really weird that they would put pillows where that other leg should be. That's what I thought. I walked around the curtain, and I looked down. He says, Pastor, they saved my leg. They were going to amputate it, but they've, they've been able to remake the veins in the arteries. And he said, I'm just so glad he didn't put me on the shelf. That man served the Lord to his dying day. Constantly telling people about Jesus. And I want to tell you something, and it's scriptural. This life that we have is not about where we start. It's where we finish. It's not about the mess-ups of the past. It's about the day that the Lord has given us right now. Solomon started strong, but he finished weak. But we can use this story to remind us that we have every opportunity to finish strong. And the Lord Jesus will give us the strength to do it. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. How do you want to finish? You say, Pastor Matt, I'm so far from the end of my life, I, I, I can't even contemplate that today. Well, contemplate what we've read from the Word. And ask yourself, do I have a teachable, humble spirit? Do I use the favor that God's given me to give right back to his glory? Am I seeking his presence and am I giving no foothold to sin? But for those of you today that most of your days are behind you, you still have today to do what the Lord has called you to. Nothing can separate you from his love. And when he called you to be part of his team, he didn't revoke your credentials. Finish strong. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God of new beginnings. That you're a God that gives second chances. That you're a God who gives us the strength and endurance to finish strong. I pray, Lord, that this tale this morning would be cautionary but never realized in our lives. I pray first for those today who really can't understand why anybody would knock on their door to invite them into what they were doing. But God, you are knocking. You are seeking them. And they might feel like they're still a work in progress. Well, praise the Lord for that. And if today you feel like a work in progress, all you need to do is open your door to God. He'll come in. He'll begin to teach you, bestow his favor, show you his presence. But perhaps you're here today and you've given a foothold to sin. You've already experienced the favor of the Lord. God's done things 
in and through your life, but you realize today that there's some work to be done. Let's do that work in this place together. Altars are open. Folks will be here to pray for you. But for just five minutes, could we ask the Lord some questions? Lord, am I humble and am I teachable? Lord, is there any foothold in my life that's not of you? Lord, have I ignored your presence or not sought it? And if so, change me because I need you. You can pray in your seat. You can pray at this altar. But for just five minutes, 